Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillah, we have Sheikh Hussein Meki with us. Thank you so much for accepting the invitation. My pleasure, Habibi Sheikh. Alhamdulillah. Sorry, my it's dark here still in uh, in Sydney, and it's too early to be in my house. I'd wake everyone up, so you get me in the dark Unless... in my car. <laughs> I'm so sorry. No, no, okay. It's my fault. I usually, I've, I've had other people on earlier than you, so it's 4 a.m. here right now, and I had a couple at 3, so I normally wake up at 3 anyway, so it's not an issue for me. Oh, wow. Australia, Australia Lebanon uh, time zones aren't very friendly. I know, I know. Yeah, but I guess that's one of the one of the issues with dealing with people over around the world is that you have to meet at random times throughout the night <laughs> what can yes. you do god bless you god bless you habibi inshallah so let's see. i remember last not the last time i've seen you in sydney but i remember way back when when i was in the uk i'd i'd go to your center the lebanese center there in london and you were part of that youth group there you and uh what was the sister's name yeah. zainab right remember Still zainab that? as well yeah of course yeah that was great. I loved no it. Way. <laughs> oh, subhanAllah. You know, you were actually the first sheikh who ever gave a lecture in English uh, in my life, really. To me. I had never seen a sheikh speak in English before. So, <laughs> And I think I was about 14 years old at the time. I'm, I'm surprised you even remember that. Of course I remember. <laughs> I remember all, all everywhere I went. <laughs> But yeah, I feel sorry that that I was your first English experience. I don't know how you how you kept on with listening to people in English after me. All right, so Sheikhna, tell me, you're studying in Lebanon right now, yeah? Yes, I'm studying in Lebanon. Um, I've been there since 2012. 2012, and before that, you were at SOAS. Yeah, so um, I was born and raised in the UK, and. Um, once I finished college, I did a BA in journalism at Brunel University, and I did an, an MA at SOAS University in religions and global politics. Mm. So what, what kind of things do you study in that degree? Like, is it all politics? And It was after journalism. No, it was, yeah, after journalism, religions and politics, so they oh. were intertwined. Okay, nice, nice. So that fits in well with, yeah. uh, with what you're studying then. That's good. Yeah, very much so, actually. Were you able to concentrate on the on the Middle East and religions in the Middle East, politics in the Middle East, or was it more general and broad? Yeah, so we there were obviously different modules that you can choose from. Um, we focused more on comparative religions when it came to religions, comparative study of religions. So um, I took a course on Buddhism at the time. Um, even after my degree, I, I went to uh, Taiwan to study Buddhism there. Um, and it was really, for me, fascinating that there were so many overlaps between esoteric concepts within Islam and all the different religions that I was studying at the time. When it came to either Christianity or Judaism, you'd expect it, but not when it came to Hinduism or Buddhism. So that was something that was uh, fascinating to me. I worked a bit on uh, Islamic feminism. I worked on... Um, at the time, the ideas of liberalism, we worked, and alhamdulillah, it was, it was a, a very beneficial year for me. 
Interesting. I remember seeing uh, pictures of you in, uh, I guess Taiwan. I didn't know it was Taiwan at the time, but I saw st- I saw pictures um, with regards to Buddhism, and it was it was interesting for me. Although I haven't studied Buddhism at all, I was I was looking at it. And I was like, huh. I wonder what sh- what Hussein Mekki is. He he weren't Sheikh at that time, but I wonder what Hussein Mekki is doing here, and. Uh, what kind of similarities do you see between Buddhism and Islam? Because now I've looked at through uh, positive psychology. In positive psychology, they look at mindfulness. And mindfulness, they connect to Buddhism as well. So it's interesting that you see those uh, correlations between psychology and Buddhism in the modern world. But what about with Islam? You said the esoteric dimensions of Islam and Buddhism have similarities. What kind of similarities do they have? Okay, so... Within Buddhism, there is no actual denial of God and there is no affirmation of God. So Buddha himself did not speak on the existence of God. So if a Buddhist was to claim that God does not exist, they'd be going further than Buddha himself. Whereas in Buddhism, what the highest point of enlightenment is called is nirvana. So when you come towards meditation, you're supposed to reach, well, the aim is to reach the highest state of enlightenment. And you reach this state called nirvana. And nirvana is the world which is one, the world of unity. So this world is the world of uh, compound existence. And over there, it's unified existence. There is the world of truth. And this is the world of delusion. And there were so many similar concepts between nirvana and tawhid that I would say, like, wait, this is God, who you're speaking about. And they would say, no, the difference between, in that sense. So there were some distinct, obviously, uh, attributes like al-hay, al-qayyum. But at the same time, you realize that there's a massive overlap between it. And not only when it came to the esoteric dimensions, but even the exoteric dimensions, The Buddhists have what they call the precepts. So they have laws, which we call fiqh. And they would say, for example, um, it's forbidden to have sexual intercourse before marriage. It's forbidden to drink. It's for many of the monks there, the monastics, they would not shake hands. A man and a woman would not interact that way. So they would just do this. So in fact, that was a non-issue for me. So I don't have to shake anyone's hand. I just say I'm Buddhist and it's all good. Um, and when they asked, I remember in the class, they said, who in this class can follow the Buddhist precepts? Who thinks that they can uphold it? And lo and behold, the only person to raise their arm was the Muslim in the room. So I already do, because in our fit, right, we follow that. So subhanAllah, it was, it was very interesting for me. Obviously, some people you know, found it weird. I was the only Muslim in the entire city. You know, I didn't meet another Muslim. So I was introducing Islam to many people uh, for the first time in their lives, and they were very interested. And at the same time, I was gaining a lot through uh, understanding the philosophy within Buddhism. And of course, with with my background knowledge on Islam, uh, comparatively speaking, it was very beneficial for me. MashaAllah. That's very interesting. How long were you there for in Taiwan? I was there for for a summer. For only, a summer. only a summer. Interesting. 
How long ago was this? This was a few years now, right? It was a. This was in two thousand and seventeen. Okay, so not too long ago. Just a few years ago. No, 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 not too long ago at all. Yeah, I'm yeah. still in touch with some of the people. Excellent, excellent. Huh. You also said uh, Islamic feminism. You studied there. Uh, yes, I, I I wrote an essay on that on on mm. if, if if that is a concept that, that can exist. <laughs> I saw I saw you you yeah. you put up a video uh, about hijab recently. Got a lot of traction. Oh yeah, I did. I, I didn't realize <laughs> that hijab was a taboo subject now. So yeah. um, there there I was just trying to put up a little beneficial fiqhi post, but it wasn't <laughs> it wasn't to everyone's liking video as a as just to clear up all the, all the questions uh-huh. um, I just did it on the spot really, yep. like a 20 minute video uh, yeah just ho- ho- hoping to just make peace <laughs> all right so and now what are you up to what you what are you doing in your studies in Lebanon so we have internet connection problems right now, probably because you're from Lebanon. It might be my end in Australia, who knows, but I'm assuming it's your end. <laughs> need to be here, yeah. And uh, yeah. So, so what... Yeah. Lebanon, the whole corona pandemic, mm. um, we've been doing all of, our, all of our studies, taking all of our lessons online. So nothing changed there. But mm-hmm. of course, it's, it's a different vibe to you know the actual classroom. And this is now... This is something that finally, I guess, I can ask a question. Someone asked me, I mean, this is my opinion, of the teacher and taking knowledge from his chest. And on the other hand, how it is when I'm at home and I put the laptop on and, you know, try to take three, four lessons. It's just not the same. And I believe that if someone wants to follow, you know, wants, wants to seek knowledge properly, like the people who want to take formal lessons, then online is good as, as a prerequisite, but there's no way. No way, unless you're some, you know, super genius or, or someone who just has the temperament to s- s- be able to sit down in front of a computer as if it was in front of real people, then I, I don't see how that they can even compare. I agree with that 100%. You cut out at the beginning, but I think I got your point at the end. Um, 100% I agree with that, that online learning isn't the same as face-to-face. No, no, Not even no, close. Not. You can use it. That's fine, mm-hmm. but when you take knowledge from the chest of the teacher in front of you, it's a completely different ball game. Yeah. When you're living, you're you're living it. You're living it in the classroom. The teacher walks in. You stand up. You sit down. You pray together before the lesson. The whole vibe is different. Let alone the content of the lesson. Mm-hmm. When you're sitting here in front of the laptop, one hour, two hours, three hours, four hours, it's just not going to work out the same way. I mean, God bless the the shuyukh who are putting that effort in. I know. Sheikh Mansour, you know, he was he was popular in Australia, of course. He has the, the e-hausa, and I know it's successful, and because many people can't travel to go to hausa, you know, so this is very beneficial for them. But I'm talking about like real scholarship, it, committing yourself to knowledge. It can't be done online. Yeah, I agree with that. Like, and as you said, as a prerequisite, it's great, right? So there's a online hausa in the states. That I was talking to one of the. Shiyukh on on this podcast, um, Sheikh uh, Mohammed Beg, he has what's called the Imam Ali Seminary, which is all online right now, and he said this, you know, he's does the same thing. It's just uh, first couple years prerequisite, and then you go to the Hausa, 
It's not in place yeah. of Hausa. Because obviously yeah. you can't. Like the experiences that we have in Hausa are more than just the information that's being mentioned in class. As you said, like yeah. the interaction between the teacher and the student is very important. And the interaction between the students is very important. And benefiting from that environment is important. So the whole the whole experience is necessary. It's not just the information that we put in our head. You know? You're right. Whole experience. Yeah. Being there amongst the students, amongst the teachers, the, the hardship that you live on its own teaches you so much. And then the actual content, the content, subhanAllah, even if it's the same words being used, you know, through technology and in person, I personally just find it a completely different world when, when it's in person. The way that you're touched is different through a computer screen. But I guess to each their own, maybe some people will disagree and, and they feel that they can benefit just as much. I agree with I that. know I can't. I, for me as well. Yeah. There's no way that I get the same out of an online lecture than I do when I'm there. Impossible. So what are you studying now in, uh, in Lebanon? So right now, um, I'm finishing off Principles of Jurisprudence, so Usul, uh, of Sayyid al-Shaheed, Muhammad Baqir al-Sadr, Halaqa Thalitha. So it's the, the three books that the student goes through, and then once he finishes those, he should be ready to go into Bahd Kharij, although usually, traditionally, they still uh, put them through studying a book called Kifaya. So that, that's like the final Usul book. Of course, you know that, but for the, for the people watching this. But Sayyid al-Shaheed designed the third book in order to be on the same level as the Kifaya and then go straight into Bahd Kharij. So it's seen as a book around about the same level, if not just under it. Though many teachers would say it's on the same level. It's a different methodology, the way that he did that. Mm. So I'm, I'm on that book now. So towards the end, alhamdulillah. alhamdulillah. Um, when I'm doing some Islamic philosophy. Um, so Bidayat al-Hikmah for Alama Tabatabai before going into Niyayat al-Hikmah. So Bidayat al-Hikmah is like the, the first step you take into the world of philosophy after you study logic. But in my hausa, we keep it till rather late. Mm. Uh, so, um, it's, it's rather late in my studies that I'm studying it, but it's because they try to put you through theology and kalam before they put you through philosophy. So you take all the you know the prerequisite books, then you take the theology books um, of Sheikh Al-Yazdi and Sheikh Jafar Subhani, Ilahiyat, Sheikh Jafar Subhani, and then they, they put you through uh, philosophy. And I'm taking some aqaid courses and Alhamdulillah, you do the, the fiqh on the side is always, you know, you can't get away from the fiqh. So <laughs> that's like the whole journey, you just have to do fiqh. Yeah. So yeah. that's like the tr traditional studies in the seminary, what I'm doing. And then I have, Alhamdulillah, my own program that I, I try to uh, read and work on at home, my own books, and then I, I write reviews on those books. And then you have all those different projects that you work on throughout the day and throughout the, the weeks. And pretty much you get into a routine of it, and then you just it just flows. Yeah, routine is very important. Very important. Yeah. When I was young, they used to think, yeah. yeah, like routine was something that was hideous. But then you realize afterwards that routine is king. You mm. need routine to get done. You really do. As soon as my routine breaks, my productivity just goes down the drain. But yeah. when the routine is flowing, it's every day you get things done, and then week by week you get more and more done. So. It's crazy how much you get done if you if you organize yourself and you go get into a routine.
Like the way the when I take a step back and I look at the things I'm doing compared to what I was doing even like a year ago. So when I was in the house, alhamdulillah, I was all right. I had a good routine there. But then I've moved, bounced around from country to country. And I, I was in uni doing psychology, finished that. And then I just kind of took a break for a while. And then now I put myself back in a routine, waking up early, studying. So I studied for a few hours before Fajr. Do I studied like a, a mix between religion and psychology, trying to, you know, get strong in both fields. And alhamdulillah, like the amount that you're able to get through if you organize yourself is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, one thing, yeah, yeah, you're there. One thing, one thing I noted, I saw recently was your Prophet Muhammad series that you did. And I didn't get a chance to watch all of it, but it was in the month of Ramadan. And I saw some of it. It looked like an amazing project. Very well done. Um, it, very good uh, recording and all of that. On, on, on that side, it was amazing. And also, obviously, the content was amazing. And I got, I've seen so much positive feedback on that. Right, so many people here in Australia were were talking about it and saying it was amazing, and even I know a teacher who actually took all of the videos together and f made a class for history that he's going to be teaching next year. So he he he's gonna make one module in his history class about Prophet Muhammad using your videos as kind of the structure no to that class. Yeah. So inshallah it'll be really good. So I told I told him to give me the powerpoints that he makes so I could replicate that inshallah in the future. But it looks really really good. So alhamdulillah. Well, I'd love to see it as well. If you guys can share it with me too, I'd love to see it. That's 100%. amazing. Oh, that's pretty good news. Yeah, I'll tell him. I'll tell him to send you this stuff. So basically, what he's doing is he's. I, I actually I did a I did a lecture series a class on Prophet Muhammad's life as well, but much shorter. So mine was only 10 sessions and I have like PowerPoint presentations for it. So I gave him those PowerPoints and he took your videos and then he's going to recreate the PowerPoints that, you know, in a better way and add your, you know, embed your videos into it as well and then go from there pretty much. Awesome. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to seeing what he does with it. And, uh, Inshallah, yeah, yeah, it's good. You know, that was actually subhanAllah, that was my main aim. I really wanted uh, that the videos to be used, especially in schools, mm. you know, for youth coming up, the young generations who, in my time, we didn't get to know too much about Rasulullah as we were growing up. And I really wanted it to be structured in such a way that uh, the kids who are watching would actually have fun watching it. Mm. So even though the Content is for adults and most of the audience were adults but I wanted to do it in a way the, the storytelling was in a way that they could feel uh, entertained by it at the same time so I'm really glad that it's, it's being used for that reason I mean that was actually the main aim so alhamdulillah so I'm very like grateful excellent excellent so I'll let you know how it goes um, I then, think my son signed up for the class so Inshallah, I'll, I'll let you know how it goes from it from a parent and a student perspective. <laughs> Inshallah. Tell him to be honest, though. If he tells you if, it's, if he tells you it was rubbish, tell me it was rubbish. <laughs> no, it's obviously the videos are amazing, so it, it wouldn't be rubbish from that side. Yeah. 
the but the the brother the brother who's doing it is an amazing teacher as well. So I'm I'm actually really looking forward to to seeing how it comes out. Yeah, I think oh, it'll be yeah. I think it'll be really good. So I'll definitely uh see if he could send you the the yeah. powerpoints that he makes, yeah. and then you could see what you want to do with those as well. Who knows? Yeah, my, my, the reason why I did them in lecture in lecture style was because I've already been doing it as a course for a couple couple of years okay. now. Nice. So yeah, so those powerpoints actually come in handy if we do, if we were to do a course again. Mm, beautiful. So one thing one thing came up uh, recently, and since you've just mm. studied it, uh, I'd like to hear your points. So uh, the Prophet obviously married Sayyid Khadija. Sayyid Khadija according to most accounts, was older than the Prophet, and according to some accounts, was married before the Prophet, and then there's children. And these children, right, other than Sayyidah Zahra, alayha, obviously, there's some dispute about whether or not they're the Prophet's biological children, or they were adopted through Sayyidah Khadija's previous marriages, right? What was... I didn't watch your... Uh, your series on on this topic, but what was your perspective on that? Well, my perspective on that is, if we look at the narrations, we see that the the, the famous story that we know is that Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wa was twenty five years old, and Sayyidah Khadija salam, was forty years old. Although there are six different narrations when it comes to her age, and only one of them says that she was forty years old. And I believe it's attributed to Ibn Hisham. Whereas the number, the age that is most likely to have been the age of Sayyidah Khadija, the first two narrations, one says she was 25 years old and one says she was 28 years old. And that's from Al-Buhayqi. And many historians have gravitated towards that opinion, that she was 25 or 28 and she was younger than the Prophet. Whereas the Prophet... He was 35 years old. And there are several reasons why this narration would be aided. One of them being that there is a narration of when Abu Talib is making the nikah between the Prophet and Sayyidah Khadija. Imam Ali salam is there and he's five years old at the time. Mm. And Imam Ali salam was born when the Prophet was 30 years old. So it fits in with the Prophet being 35, Imam Ali salam being five years old and present at the nikah. At the same time, if we were to suggest that Sayyidah Khadija was 40 years old and the Prophet was 25 and that they had, got, had gotten married, that means 15 years later, the Prophet is 40 and that's when he received the Prophethood. And Sayyidah Khadija means Sayyidah Khadija would be 55 years old at this point. Five years later is the Isra Al-Ma'raj, making Sayyidah Khadija 60 years old. Sayyidah Fatima salam, is born after the Isra Al-Ma'raj, which means Sayyidah Khadija, by that narration, would have given birth in the desert at that time when the usual life expectancy was in the 60s, that she would give birth to a child in that time, which is increasingly unlikely. I'm not saying it's impossible, I'm saying it's unlikely. As we know, Nabi Ibrahim's wife gave birth in an old age. It's unlikely. But right now, why should I gravitate towards her being 40 when all this evidence is present pointing towards the fact that no, she was younger. And in fact, we have narrations saying she was 25 and 28 years old. Why should I gravitate to that one? Again, there is uh, throughout 
throughout studying history, one notices a trend in which you you offer underlying attributes when it comes to the Prophet or Abu Talib or Imam Ali or Sayyidah Khadija or anyone from the Ahlul Bayt and it decreases from their station by any way figure seems slightly better. So even though being older is no issue, if she was actually older, there's no issue, even though the, the evidence doesn't point towards that. But, if, but then you, you find that she's older, you find that she had kids, you find that she was married twice before him, you find that obviously another wife is supposed to be the virgin wife, the young wife, the beautiful wife, whereas this wife is the old wife, you know, the wife with kids, the wife that's not a virgin, the wife that's etc, etc. So although none of these things are wrong within themselves, you have to ask yourself, why is it being presented to me in this way when evidence leads to it being otherwise? Then we come to the issues of her marrying beforehand. Aside from her age, being 25 or 28 years old and making it unlikely that she was married twice before. When someone understands the tribe of Quraysh, they understand that no one can marry into that tribe, especially a millionaire like Sayyidah Khadija who was seen as Sayyidat Quraysh, the princess of Quraysh, who Abu Sufyan was trying to marry, one of the chiefs of Quraysh, let alone two men from outside the tribes, lowly tribes, coming into Quraysh to marry basically the princess. Abu Sufyan would never, would never allow it. Mm. Imagine someone coming in to marry right now. We, we, let's just look at contemporarily someone like Meghan Markle, who isn't a nobody, who is you know a famous actor, um, is very well sought after, but because she comes to marry Prince Harry, right, the royal, okay, from the royal family, look how much hate she got for being an outsider. I'm not even going to say the color of her skin. I'm going to say for being an outsider, let's just say, that she and Prince Harry had to leave and go to Canada and Prince Harry act, act, had to relieve all his royal duties. Okay, I want you to have that. What? You haven't subscribed yet? Mate, get on the ball. Subscribe to the channel.